Hello and welcome to episode 4 of the Reading Wave podcast with me, David. Our first offering is from the famous 19th century English poet Robert Browning. My last duchess starts and ends with a nobleman extolling the artworks he owns, but there are underlying sinister threats hidden within. Andy MacLeod reads My Last Duchess by Robert Browning. That's my last duchess painted on the wall, looking as if she were alive. I call that piece a wonder now. Fra Pandolf's hands worked busily a day and there she stands. Well, please you sit and look at her. I said Fra Pandolf by design, for never read strangers like you that pictured countenance, the depth and passion of its earnest glance, but to myself they turned, since none puts by the curtain I've drawn for you but I, and seemed as they would ask me, if they durst, how such a glance came there. So, not the first, are you to turn and ask thus. Sir, it was not her husband's presence only, called that spot of joy into the Duchess cheek, perhaps Fra Pandolf chanced to say, her mantle laps over my lady's wrist too much, or paint must never hope to reproduce the faint half-flush that dies along her throat. Such stuff was courtesy, she thought, and cause enough for calling up that spot of joy. She had a heart, how shall I say, too soon made glad, too easily impressed. She liked whatever she looked on, and her looks went everywhere. Sir, it was all one. My favourite, her breast, the dropping of the daylight in the west, the bough of cherries some officious fool broke in the orchard for her, the white mule she rode with round the terrace. All and each would draw from her alike the approving speech or blush, at least. She thanked men, good, but thanked somehow, I know not how, as if she ranked my gift of a nine hundred years old name with anybody's gift, who'd stoop to blame this sort of trifling. Even had you skill in speech, which I have not, to make your will quite clear to such a one, and say, just this or that in you disgusts me. Here you miss, or there exceed the mark, and if she let herself be lessened so, nor plainly set her wits to yours, forsooth and made excuse, e'en then would be some stooping, and I choose never to stoop. Oh, sir, she smiled, no doubt, whene'er I passed. But who passed without much the same smile? This grew, I gave commands, then all smiles stopped together. Then she stands, as if alive. But please you rise. We'll meet the company below, then. I repeat, the Count, your master's known munificence, is ample warrant that no just pretense of mine for dowry will be disallowed. Though his fair daughter's self, as I avowed, as starting is my object. Nay, we'll go together down, sir. Notice Neptune, though, taming a seahorse. 
thought a rarity, which Klaus of Innsbruck cast in bronze for me. Reading number two comes from Lincoln in the Bardo by George Saunders. On a night in April 1862, Abraham Lincoln and his wife hold a great presidential dinner at the White House. Their son, Willie, lies upstairs in bed seriously ill with typhoid fever. Witness testaments in short statements make up a lot of the narrative. Some reliable, some not so. Here are some of them for us to judge. The children, Tad and Willie, were constantly receiving presents. Willie was so delighted with a little pony that he insisted on riding it every day. The weather was changeable and exposure resulted in a severe cold which deepened into fever. Willie was burning with fever on the night of the 5th as his mother dressed for the party. He drew every breath with difficulty. She could see that his lungs were congested and she was frightened. There was no joy in the evening for the mechanically smiling hostess and her husband. They kept climbing the stairs to see how Willie was, and he was not doing well at all. Many guests especially recalled the beautiful moon that shone that evening. In several accounts of the evening, the brilliance of the moon is remarked upon. A common feature of these narratives is the golden moon hanging quaintly above the scene. There was no moon that night and the sky was heavy and with clouds. A fat green crescent hung above the mad scene like a stolid judge inured to all human folly. The full moon that night was yellow-red as if reflecting the light of some earthly fire. As I moved about the room I would encounter that silver wedge of a moon at this window or that like some old beggar who wished to be invited in. By the time dinner was served, the moon shone high and small and blue above, still bright, albeit somewhat diminished. The night continued dark and moonless. A storm was moving in. The guests began to depart as the full yellow moon hung among morning stars. The clouds were heavy, leaden and low, of a dull rosate colour. There was no moon. My husband and I paused to look up at the room in which young Lincoln suffered. I said a silent prayer for the health of the lad. We found the carriage and made for home, where our own children, thanks be to a merciful God, were resting peacefully. Not long after that, Willie Lincoln died. He was 11 years old. To lighten the mood a little, here is a short piece by John Cooper Clark, 
called The Hanging Gardens of Basildon. The Hanging Gardens of Basildon. The bluebirds sang our favourite tune that scented summer's afternoon, where the shadows vanish and the flowers swoon. It's her face what dazzled them by the hanging gardens of Basildon. So long, Charlene, see your shell. I'm strong in it with an Essex girl. She's one of the several wonders of the world. Turn left at Dagenham for the hanging gardens of Basildon. The redwood forest is a bunch of sticks. The wall of China is a pile of bricks. The pyramids mean less than nicks. It's the A13 I travel on to the hanging gardens. I beg your pardon, I said the hanging gardens of Baden Baden. No, the hanging gardens of Basildon. I hope that John Cooper Clark can forgive the Scouse accent. I'm sorry, but it's my own. Anyway, I think it's just as good in Scouse as it is in Mancunian. I love Dylan Thomas for his lilting lyrical language. I've chosen from a book called A Prospect of the Sea, Essays and Stories by Dylan Thomas. From that I will read part of Conversations About Christmas. The conversation is between small boy and self as a duologue. I think that the small boy and self are one and the same person. Conversation about Christmas. Small boy. Years and years and years ago, when you were a boy, self, when there were wolves in Wales and birds the colour of red flannel petticoats whisked past the harp-shaped hills, when we sang and wallowed all night and day in caves that smelt like Sunday afternoon in damp front farmhouse parlours, and chased with the jawbones of deacons, the English and the bears. Small boy. You are not so old as Mr. Bain and number 22, who can remember when, when there were no motors. Years and years ago, when you were a boy. Self. Oh, before the motor even, before the wheel, before the duchess-faced horse, when we rode the daft and happy hills bareback. Small boy. You're not so daft as Mrs Griffiths up the street who says she puts her ear under the water in the reservoir and listens to the fish talk Welsh. When you were a boy, what was Christmas like? Self. It snowed. Small boy. It snowed last year too. I made a snowman and my brother knocked it down and I knocked my brother down and then we had tea. Self, but that was not the same snow. Our snow was not only shaken in whitewashed buckets down the sky. I think it came shawling out of the ground and swam and drifted out of the arms and hands and bodies of the trees. Snow grew overnight on the roofs of the houses like a pure and grandfather moss minutely ivied the walls and settled on the postman opening the gates like a dumb, numb thunderstorm of white torn Christmas cards. Small boy. Were the postman then too? Self. 
with sprinkling eyes and wind-cherried noses. On spread frozen feet they crunched up to the doors and mittened on them manfully. But all that the children could hear was a ringing of bells. Small boy. You mean that the postman went rat-a-tat and the doors rang? Self. The bells that the children could hear were inside them. Small boy. I only hear thunder sometimes, never bells. Self. There were church bells too. Small boy. Inside them? Self. No, no, no. In the bat-black snow-white belfries tugged by bishops and storks, and they rang their tidings over the bandaged town, over the frozen foam of the powder and ice-cream hills, over the crackling sea. It seemed that all the churches boomed for joy under my window, and the weathercocks crew for Christmas on our fence. I will describe this last piece as science fiction, fantasy, comedy. It's a series of five books, yet it's billed as a trilogy. Hmm. Well, yes, it's A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in five parts, written by Douglas Adams. I just love the way Adams has laughs on every page. And so, on to A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and I'm going to read from the first book, Chapter 5. Prostetnik Vogon Jelts was not a pleasant sight, even for other Vogons. His highly domed nose rose high above a small piggy forehead. His dark green rubbery skin was thick enough for him to play the game of Vogon civil service politics and play it well. And it was waterproof enough for him to survive indefinitely at the sea depths of up to a thousand feet with no ill effects. Not that he ever went swimming, of course. His busy schedule would not allow it. He was the way he was because billions of years ago, when the Vogons had first crawled out of the sluggish primeval seas of Vogue Sphere, and had lain panting and heaving on the planet's virgin shores. When the first rays of the bright young Vogsol sun had shone across them that, that morning, it was as if the forces of evolution had simply given up on them there and then, had turned aside in disgust and written them off as an ugly and unfortunate mistake. They never evolved again. They should never have survived. The fact that they did is some kind of tribute to the thick-willed, slug-brained stubbornness of these creatures. Evolution, they said to themselves, who needs it? And what nature refused to do for them, they simply did without, until such time as they were able to rectify the grosser anatomical inconveniences with surgery. Meanwhile, the natural forces of the planet Vogue Sphere had been working overtime to make up for their earlier blunder. They brought forth scintillating, dual scuttling crabs, which the Vogons ate, 
smashing their shells with iron mallets. Tall, aspiring trees of breathtaking slenderness and colour which the Vogons cut down and burned the crab meat with. Elegant, gazelle-like creatures with silken coats and dewy eyes which the Vogons would catch and sit on. They were no use as transport because their backs would snap instantly, but the Vogons sat on them anyway. Thus, the planet Vogue Sphere wiled away the unhappy millennia until the Vogons suddenly discovered the principles of interstellar travel. Within a few short Vogue years, every last Vogon had migrated to the Megabrantis Cluster, the political hub of the galaxy, and now formed the immensely powerful backbone of the Galactic Civil Service. They have attempted to acquire learning, they have attempted to acquire style and social grace, but in most respects the modern Vogon is little different from his primitive forebears. Every year they import 27,000 scintillating jeweled scuttling crabs from their native planet and while away a happy drunken night smashing them to bits with iron mallets. Prostetnik Vogon Jeltz was a fairly typical Vogon in that he was thoroughly vile. Also, he did not like hitchhikers. I hope you enjoyed this episode 4 of the Reading Wave podcast. I'd like to say a big thank you to Andy McLeod for his contribution My Last Duchess by Robert Browning. And from me, David, it's stay safe, stay sane until the next time.